this morning when I dropped my son off at school, uh, it was raining out, so we had to go inside the cafeteria before the they took him into their classrooms. And uh, evidently they have like this environmentally conscious thing going on for like the second graders or something. And so there were all these environmental posters hung up all over the cafeteria. And one of them had like a top 10 list of things that you should uh, do to help the planet. And uh, I didn't really notice it until like I was about to leave. So I started reading it and uh, it, it starts off pretty, you know, run of the mill. It says like, um, you know, save energy, turn off the lights, don't use too much water, that type of stuff. And then number nine is don't breathe as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I guess maybe they're just concerned with CO2 emissions, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you know, that's where I said it. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, According to Bike Shed, don't breathe, save (laughs) the planet. That's right. Well, that's interesting. Yes. And then also my five-year-old son came home today and was named Student of the Month. Perhaps because he doesn't breathe very often. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm very excited about that. I've yet to see if it comes with like a bumper, an obnoxious bumper sticker I can put on my car or something like that. But we'll see. <laughs> what have you been up to? Uh, action cable. Yeah, let's talk about that. So there's a PR, or there was a PR. There is no longer a PR. Well, it still exists, but it's been merged. Correct. Right. Correct. And uh, Rails 5.0.0. Beta 1 shipped Monday? Something like that? Friday? No. Sometime around. Well, yeah, it was last week. It was Friday, I think. Right. Thursday or Friday. So people have had a few days to play with it. And uh, when we had David on the show back on episode 14 or 15 or something like that, we'll link to it in the show notes, um, we talked about like the decision whether or not we were going to have Action Cable be like a dependency of Rails or if it was going to be a gem that you could optionally include. And I guess I would say, as I feared, <laughs> it is actually a dependency of Rails itself, and that's causing some strife. Well, I can't do my job right now because it has some hard dependencies that don't work on Windows, and I'm developing on Windows right now, so I've had to drop everything else that I was doing to fix that problem okay and that's so we can't we, run the test suite we talked about that as well during the episode because we everybody we hadn't seen the code during the episode david had just kind of announced that um action cable was a thing that he was working on with some people um for base camp three and that it was going to be part of rails and talked about some of the some of the technologies it was built on and we were all like well wait a minute it's going to have a hard dependency on event machine and celluloid and redis, redis. and you know, we talked a little bit about that, and at the time, he was like, well, you know, that's how we're building it now, because that fi- that suits our needs, but I'm sure, I don't know if he said I'm sure, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but basically saying that he would like to, at some point, see it become like Active Record, where you don't, you don't directly depend on MySQL. If MySQL is activated, you get the MySQL adapter for Active Record, that kind of thing. Right. He would like to see that, just not have anything to do with making that happen. <laughs> right. And so the the real bummer of it for me was, and yeah, like the windows issues like this is nothing new right like this is what kind of why you're experimenting with windows is to see where the pain points are and right you know these gems and, are particularly pain points no it was just so funny because i've been you know doing this for the last couple of weeks and i've been making good progress on improving windows support in various places and then all of a sudden this massive regression occurs right where you can't run the test suite <laughs> right so is there 
like what is the particular problem for you there's a couple of problems right there's a problem on windows what's or several problems perhaps on windows well the main one so there's two things so number one um by with just a, a like default installation of ruby on windows um you can't install gems that have c uh dependencies you, you need a thing called DevKit, and then that gives you like gcc and all that stuff and that's fine but then action cable has a hard dependency on uh EM High Redis, which has a hard dependency on High Redis RB, which uh, bundles the High Redis C library, which doesn't does not support Windows and like actively refuses to support Windows. Hmm. So yeah. So what's then the story going to be there? Basically, it looks like High Redis RB also has a pure Ruby implementation. So I've got a pull request open to them that like tries to detect if High Redis the C library would compile successfully and if it wouldn't compile successfully just doesn't even try and bundle the C extension and just falls back to a Ruby implementation. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So it'll just be slower for everybody, but I guess like you're not deploying to Windows. Yeah, I mean like I I don't I don't care if it's slower. Uh I'm not I'm not doing this because I expect people to be using Windows for everyday development or deploy to Windows. I'm doing it because programs like Rails Bridge it is important that Windows uh Rails new on Windows just works. Right, and that's a similar problem, to my understanding, that has happened on OS X as well, right? So you can't just gem install Rails, Rails new anymore. Yeah, you have to do some weird stuff with OpenSSL from Homebrew. Right, and that's because something, one of the dependencies of Action Cable requires compiling against some development headers for OpenSSL. Right, and OS X no longer ships OpenSSL. At all, or they don't ship the header? At all. Oh, interesting. Didn't know that. Um... So yeah, yeah you have to like Capitan. so you'd have to brew install it and then link it so that it was in the right location, and then gem install Rails, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, if if you're going to be doing much Rails development, you're going to need a homebrew environment anyway, because you're going to need some of these programs that to compile C extensions against. Yeah, no, I mean that one's not that big of a deal. Um, I would like to not require additional steps just in general, um, especially because. You know, C extensions, me, everything that we do that involves a C extension is something that the JRuby guys basically have to work around for JRuby support. And that may be a, a pain point on Windows. And um, I don't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> um, neither. <laughs> I, would, I would just, I would prefer that Rails new just work and not, like it's, it, it should not be that complicated of a thing to generate a Rails app. So, I think it was Monday or maybe sometime this weekend, David put, posted a video on YouTube that's basically a screencast of him walking through implementing a chat room with Action Cable. And a couple things struck me about the video. Some of them were cool. Some of them were like, oh, well, if that's the case, what's going on here? Like, one of the things was that Action Cable, yes, it is a dependency of Rails, but it ships totally inert, right? It's not doing anything. Like, you have to go in and uncomment something in your application JS to include the JavaScript part, and then you have to... Uh, mount the thing in your route, the channel server or whatever in your routes. I don't think that's going to continue to be true once 5.0 ships. Okay. Because, I, I mean, there was no mention of... A couple times during the video, he said, like, we're going to fix this, this won't be... Like, there's an issue with Spring, which he mentioned they're hoping to fix. There's an issue where it doesn't auto-reload, so you have to stop and start the server. So he's hoping that that would be fixed, things like that. But this, I, I, I don't think that one's going to be fixed. You don't think I'm they're not gonna... sure what he thinks we can do about that one. 
So, th so this is this is the this is like you're changing the JavaScript. Is that what's going on? No, no. Uh, it's it's the JavaScript will be fine. It's Ruby classes because we have to be thread safe. Hmm. Mm hmm. Yes. <laughs> right, and you can't do live reloading in a multi-threaded environment. Well, if the multi, if the multi, I mean, why do you need a multi-threaded development environment? Because uh, Action Cable maintains a persistent connection and requires a separate thread. Oh, right. Hmm. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting to watch not happen, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah. So, so beyond that, like, I, I watched some of the functionality. And I was like, I'm sure I could find a place that I would like to use this in my apps. Like, I've worked on a couple apps where even just tiny little things about, you know, you're on a page and you happen to get a new message sent to you if there's like a messaging system. It'd be cool to be able to live update that badge that says, you know, you have four messages, now you have five messages. Just a tiny little like sprinkle of JavaScript um, <laughs> that you could do with WebSockets. Or you could, I mean, you could previously do this with polling, right? And that also would not have been bad, but this is, I guess, a cooler way to do it. <laughs> Until HTTP2 support happens. With server push, is that what you're... With server push and HTTP2 doesn't actually support WebSockets at all. And I don't remember the specifics, but basically like long polling becomes far superior to WebSockets with something about how HTTP, HTTP2 works. Huh. All right, well, we'll look up something in the, and we'll link to that in the show notes, which will be at bikeshot.fm slash 46. Yeah, I'll um, see if I can find an article or something. Yeah. Hmm. Well, if that's the case, it seems like, I mean, we've been hearing that HTTP2 support is right around the corner for a while and there's various modes of http http2 support right you can support server push you cannot support server push like that's also not just about http2 being supported like within rails it's also about browsers right. properly handling everything related to it and getting some of the kinks worked out and application servers and web servers and all that stuff so <laughs> these keep pointing me to uh gem install action cable being the thing that would be <laughs> the right thing to do right um like if you want to opt into this i don't i don't understand the argument for shipping it directly with rails i guess is what i'm saying well there isn't an argument that's the interesting thing like the only argument i've seen made is basically that he wants it to be part of the default stack and fully integrated mm -hmm. like which somehow implies that if it were just a gem file dependency and we put it in the default gem file which makes it part of the default stack, like that we somehow would need to do more work to make it be fully integrated with the rest of Rails, but that's not true, and it's very obviously not true, and David is a smart guy who I'm fairly certain understands that we are having to do more work to have it be a default dependent, uh, to have it be a hard dependency of Rails, and it would take for it to be a gem file dependency. So I honestly, I honestly don't know what the reasoning is. Okay. But it's clearly not the arguments that have been made, and I can't imagine that, that he actually thinks that those arguments are valid. Right. I think, you know, and I'm not, I'm not inside David's head, so I don't know, but, like, the only thing I can come up with is that, like, making it a hard part of Rails means there's no additional steps to try and use it, which may help adoption. And if he feels strongly that it makes better web applications, then that may be his angle. But if, if that's the case, it seems like maybe plainly stating that would be interesting or good it also seems like all of that would apply to turbo links right and turbo links is a gem file dependency right mm -hmm. anyway i don't know it's it's interesting because we we talked about this and like somebody commented on our 
on our episode with DHH basically saying like, of course, it's not going to ship with Redis as a hard dependency. Of course, this isn't going to like get, have some faith, basically. And it was like, well, let's wait and see. And, it, and, you know, we're only at beta one. So maybe beta two or RC one or whatever comes along in a couple months before this actually ships will improve things drastically. And I'm sure it will improve. But the real bummer of it for me, and I was talking to some people about this before, is that like people like yourself and people like Aaron and other people who are doing a lot of work with Rails now have to focus their energy on this rather than what they'd rather be spending their time on working with. Right. Well, and that's the problem is that internally it's not like, of course, we, will, we won't ship with Redis as a hard dependency. It's, hey, if any of you guys uh, care about not having Redis as a hard dependency, you should go do the work to make that happen. But I don't, I, I don't care if we ship it with Redis as a hard dependency. So, Right. And then it becomes like, and of course, we're not going to ship with Redis as a hard dependency, but then that puts it on those of us who would, yeah who have other things to do to drop everything else and and take care of this thing. Right. So that's really a shame. I mean, because if I were submitting code to Rails and something went wrong with it after I submitted it, I would feel personal ownership over like, okay, well, how do I make this a better experience for everybody? I wouldn't just... It seems... I guess I would just say disrespectful to say like, boom, here's a bunch of code that by looking at it, we can tell a bunch of our users are going to have problems with it. Either we're going to let those problems happen or somebody's going to fix it. And that somebody's not going to be me. Yeah. Seems a little bit disrespectful of everybody's time involved, which is unfortunate. And, you know, I don't know. That roughly sums up how I've been feeling. Okay. It's been a long week. Right. And I, I don't want to like, I, I want to be very careful not to like put arguments into David's mouth because I'm not uh, a party to any of the conversations that happen internally or anything like that. I'm just looking at it externally sure. and trying to draw conclusions from that. But anyway, um, I think that's a good time to take us a quick break for a word about our sponsor for today's episode. So our sponsor this week is Thinkful. Thinkful provides online design and development classes that are set apart from their competitors by their emphasis on one-on-one -on -one mentorship from experts. When you sign up for Thinkful, you'll be paired with an experienced engineer, and you'll meet with that engineer at least once a week as you learn to build an application with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and jQuery, or maybe you pick up an additional framework um, that you're like something like Node.js or Angular. Thinkful is a good fit for designers that want to bring their comps to life with code or beginners that want to become software engineers. As we mentioned, it's also great for intermediates looking to load up on new skills. If you visit Thinkful.com now, you can check out all the different courses they offer and find something that suits your needs. For 20% off your enrollment, you can visit Thinkful.com slash bike shed. That's T-H-I-N-K-F-U-L dot com slash bike shed. Our thanks to Thinkful for supporting the show. Want to shift gears? Yeah. I guess I have, I have a little bit of follow-up on Scenic, which we talked about in our last episode. Some of the problems we discussed with it were like, how do we handle order dependencies in the schema um, in the schema file, like you have one view that depends on another view. How do we handle select star, things like that. So I played with that a lot this weekend to try and see if I could come up with a solution. And two things came to mind. One was, we discussed this on the episode, I'm just going to dump the table of views in the order that Postgres gives them to me, rather than sorting them by name, which is what we were doing before, just for, I don't know why we were doing that. I guess maybe because it looked nicer in the schema file. <laughs> um, so now we'll just dump them in the order Postgres gives them to me. Unfortunately, the table that defines the schema objects does not have a created at timestamp. So I can't say like sort it by whenever it was created at. I just have to take it in the order Postgres gives it to me. That seems to be consistent, but I don't know if there's any guarantee that it's going to be consistent. So far it's worked. Like when I tried inserting different views in different like different sessions and trying to see like 
does the order come out in a way that I can dump the schema? And every time so far it has. So I have a pull request open for that, waiting for somebody to kind of take a look at it. But so far it's worked on the application on the things I've tried it on. I tend not to write views that depend on views, so it's not a problem I'm having. But that seems to have fixed that small problem. The select star thing that we talked about, where like Postgres takes select star and bakes that into your schema definition. So changes to the underlying tables don't impact the view schema at all, as you might expect they would. Um, I think we're just basically going to handle that with a big old readme documentation. Like, if you want to use select star, here are the things you need to look out for. And then perhaps do some sort of way to say, like, you know, you can refresh views like this, that kind of thing. That also seems reasonable, right? Like, if somebody's using this gem, which helps you to create database views, then you presumably understand, like, database views and understand that scenic is not the mechanism by which database views exist and if you need to go look up docs for how views work you go to postgres not scenic right and that's a little too optimistic (laughs) and then the other the other problem we discussed was like when you update a view that is a parent of another view and you change its schema such that you like remove a column that another view perhaps depends on postgres is going to complain because it knows about the dependencies i think we're just going to have to let that happen right Um, and that I've been thinking about a couple different ways we could maybe make that a little better, which is like maybe adding a force to like, if you want to do drop view, right? Drop view parent, you could do drop view parent force and that would force the cascade, which is something that fo- that Postgres supports. I'm a little worried about that because it, for understandable reasons, I think like if you don't right. know that you have a dependency, so maybe I won't do that and just make yeah, it. Maybe you don't call it force. Maybe call it like cascade. Right. Right. I mean, you will get... Uh, no, you won't get output. So I don't know. I might not do that, but it might just have to be like we're going to live with these errors that come back from Postgres, and that's kind of like the deal when you're doing when you're when you're working with views. You need to understand the dependencies between the views and things like that. Maybe so. maybe you could help make the error message a little bit, you know, parse the error message somehow, and maybe give recommendations like try doing this. Right. Yeah, we could work on that. And then the last thing was materialized views um i don't know if we talked about this so scenic has support for materialized views and those are basically just tables that are like uh, it's, it's a cached result of a view in a table and you can index them which makes them very fast and then you just tell postgres when you want to refresh them you can either set that on a cron job you could do it as part of an active record callback like whatever you want to do to to get it to refresh the view we don't support calling update view for a, a materialized view at this point because that requires dropping the materialized view and recreating it, which would drop any associated indexes. And we didn't want to introduce huge performance problems with that. So the idea I'm kicking around in my head and just needing the time to look at to solve that is to look at the tables or look at the materialized view before we perform the drop, grab all the indexes off of it, and then attempt to reapply the indexes after the table has been recreated and ignore any that error. Because presumably if they error after, it's because you changed the schema such that they would have been dropped, like active record would have dropped those. Like if you're doing a table, they would have been dropped as well, right? And then presumably if you have scaling problems where like you can't actually reapply, well, no, the index would always successfully apply because you'd have to manually refresh the view. Right. Seems fine. I think. I don't know. So it's interesting. Like the questions are like how easy am I going to actually be able to pull out the indexes and am I going to be able to reliably catch the errors in a way that doesn't catch other errors that might occur. 
Well, you should um, be able to just use the uh, mechanisms that Rails already uses to get the indexes for tables, because presumably right. they look exactly the same. Yep. Yep. Because it is a table. Yep. Yep. That's what I'm thinking. And then finally, the last step of that would be like, or, or one alternative to that would be to allow people who are defining their SQL schema in the files to also define their views and in, their indexes in SQL so that any indexes for your materialized view would be included in the definition for the materialized view. But then you have to write those indexes in SQL, which you may not want to do. You may prefer the active record migration syntax. And also anytime you wanted to change an index, you'd have to actually create a new version of your scenic view, which is a little perhaps not what people would want to do. Yeah. So I think well, I'm you'd have to like copy paste the indexes every time, right? Yeah, well, Scenic's generators are smart enough to say like if you want to if you're if if you're going from version two to version three of a gener of a view, it copies the schema for version two gotcha. into the file for version three for you to tweak. It doesn't expect you to start from scratch all over again. Cool. So yeah, those are just like things that I thought were really hard, and like just talking them out with you and being like, I think there's something reasonable we can do here. That's the eighty twenty solution that will be fine for most users, and still not have to do the schema table thing for a little while anyway. We can keep putting that off. Seems good. How's uh, how's your ORM coming? Um, good. Migrations are going to be the big feature of 0.4. So I've got a pull request open right now that has most of the machinery for that now in place. It only it only exposes a single method. It doesn't have a lot of the infrastructure that we're going to want, or it has all the infrastructure, but not a lot of the utilities we're going to want. It basically, exposes a single public function called run pending migrations or something along those lines, mm -hmm. um, which does essentially what rake db migrate would do but the key the key difference here is i don't have a command line utility for it yet i have no way to roll back a migration even though all of the code to support rolling back migrations is in place i don't actually have any public way for you to do that no way to generate them but it, it, it it's working pretty out pretty well so far i've had a couple of people come in and try it i still haven't merged it because i've got a, a handful of changes i need to make to that pull request before i merge it but um basically the idea the the Migrations are raw SQL files. I still haven't decided if I'm going to have like a, a Rust DSL or not, but I know I'm always going to want to support the SQL file version. Um, and I want, and if that's the case, I want you to be able to arbitrarily mix and match between them. And so, if you look at the code, you can see like it's written assuming there will be other forms of migrations in the future. But anyway, so the each migration is a directory that begins with a timestamp, and then you can have whatever you want after after the first underscore. Uh, and then inside of that, it expects a single file or two files up dot SQL and down dot SQL. We ignore files that begin with a dot, but then if we see other files, like I'm, I'm being very strict about what is allowed to be in this directory to start with, just because since I am planning on like having other forms of migrations, I sort of want to reject anything that doesn't match exactly what a migration should look like, because we could get weird mismatches. So the directory doesn't have the right name. If there's any files of any kind in uh, in the migrations directory itself, and if there's any, if there's not exactly up dot sql and down dot sql in the migration directory, it errors out. But uh, yeah, and so basically we, we we run that SQL file. Does it support any sort of schema dumping at all? No. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm still deciding what my actual stance is on using migrations for like database maintenance stuff where you need to just modify some data that isn't related to a schema change. If it's it, where it's just like, I know I have some bad data and so here's me updating the data to be not bad anymore. I still haven't decided what my official stance on that is. Because if my stance is that's okay and that's a perfectly legitimate supported use use case, then I do need some form of schema dumping. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I had this is reminding me of an issue that I had with migrations in the last week, which I think is just kind of there's not a big lesson to be taken here, except that sometimes you really foul things up. <laughs> so I was working on a client project and noticed that they had several missing indexes from foreign keys. And where I say several, I mean like 120 or 130 or something like that. Foreign foreign keys. Small were, number. Yeah, we're missing indexes. And um, this client we discussed before it was the same client that like has a sensitivity to taking the date, taking the application offline to do any sort of maintenance at all. So they want to be able to deploy things hot. And so as we discussed in the um, Teachable Moments episode, the way to apply indexes on a hot database that doesn't lock the table is to use concurrently keyword, basically, in Postgres. But when you do that, you lose DDL transactions. So, so the way I approached this was like, what I want to do then is apply a single index in a single migration. Rather than have one migration that was like, apply all these missing indexes with no DDL transaction, because if one of them went wrong, I wouldn't have an easy way to roll back just the, like, you see what I'm getting yeah, at here. Yeah. Um, so because there were so many missing ones, I wrote an application, or wrote, a, wrote an application. I wrote a script, basically, that wrote out a bunch of migrations, you know, that applied the indexes I wanted with the concurrently disabling the DDL transaction, things like that. And I ran the script and noticed that I couldn't migrate reliably because... My script was fast enough such that files had the same timestamp. So what I did was I expanded the timestamp out to milliseconds. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, I just need more precision in this timestamp. And that's fine. And everything ran great. It all it had generated me all the timestamps. They still sorted properly in the file view um, in Finder and you know, doing an LS on the directory or whatever. And I was like, okay, this is going to be great. I even tested rolling back. Worked fine. So we deployed that, and then it, they found out after I rolled off the project a couple of weeks later, I guess, when somebody tried to roll back a migration, they found out that they were rolling back my migration because <laughs> my migration had the highest integer value. So it was basically splitting on the timestamp in the file name and then doing an integer sort on them rather than a string sort, which is what your file system is doing. Right. So my migration always appeared to be the most recent migration and was going to be so forever. So <laughs> even though I wasn't on the project, I felt terrible about it. Wrote, a, wrote like, I was going to say a quick script, but it actually took me a decent amount of time to like map the what I had written to like sequentially incrementing migrations and then write code that renamed the mig the existing migrations and then also updated the schema migrations table <laughs> with those same version numbers. <laughs> All because at the time I just didn't want to put a sleep one in my code to make it <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't want to have to wait, you know, three minutes or whatever for this to complete when I was testing it. Right. So yeah, try not to get cute. <laughs> That's the teachable <laughs> moment from that. Uh, and I'm sorry to that client for should have written that script in uh, in in Rust or Go because then millisecond precision wouldn't wouldn't have been high enough. <laughs> right, I would have to keep going. Uh, but it did bring up, like we talked about this a little bit at our developer discussion at ThoughtBot, and it brought up like the idea of doing timestamped migrations. Because like when Rails migration started, it actually just used to be zero one underscore, right? It didn't use a timestamp, it just used a sequential number. Right. And the timestamp was moved to presumably because when you have multiple people working on a code base, you can have... Uh, you're, you're likely to have multiple, you know, zero, three, one of them will be like add user to posts and the other one will be add index to posts or something like right. that. And, and like the 95% case where you have that sort of conflict, it doesn't actually matter which one is run first. Correct. 
so they went to timestamps because it gives you a little more entropy, basically. And so they can, you know, you, you don't, you're not going to collide for the most part. It does happen, I guess. It's probably happened somewhere. <laughs> it happens when Derek works on the project. <laughs> right. But there's still a problem with that in that, like, you get, when the schema gets dumped, you get, like, assume migrated up to, and it gives you the timestamp. But if you were working on a migration, that wouldn't necessarily work, right? Like if you also, if you and I were working on migrations, yours came before mine, mine came after, we both merged them, the schema would say assume migrated up to something, but it wouldn't be. I don't know if that, does that actually not matter? It doesn't matter. It, right. I mean, it, like, so if you ran DB schema load, it would not include your migration, but migration, uh, migrations, while they are ordered, can be, are, are allowed to be run out of that order. The ordering only matters if there are multiple migrations which need to be run, but we will always run un, uh, unrun migrations even if the version of that migration is lower than the last run, latest run migration, which is why we maintain the schema migrations table in the first place. If we didn't, if we only, if we never ran things with an earlier timestamp, we wouldn't even need that. We could just look at schema RV and say, "Hey, what's the number here?" Right. Okay. So as long as you handle the merge conflicts in that schema file properly, right. which is basically always by running the migrations and then running rake db schema dump. Um, well, migrations automatically dump schema. Right, but if you're handling a merge conflict in oh, in yeah. the migration, like every time I get those, like a lot of times people don't know what to do with that, and I think what I, I'm pretty sure what I do basically every time is I just ignore the file system and just say uh, run the migrations that are included in this merge commit here now, and then it'll dump the schema when you run the migration, and you'll have a fresh schema that includes everything. That can work, yeah. Right. Um, and then you you can get into right there. There's that five percent case where like it actually does matter what order these things are running and like migration two makes migration one invalid and so developer the developer who wrote migration one will be fine because then they'll mer you know he'll merge in the other developer's branch and run it and it'll be fine but then developer two will be screwed because developer two when they were working on the branch that created migration two presumably ran that migration and then next time they run on master they'll they'll have migration one in there and right so that, that that's the that's the argument for like Maybe we should have them be explicitly ordered, so that way you're forced to like look and see if there's a conflict. But I don't think it's worth it be just because it's such an edge case. Right. I haven't. I have not seen that really come up in practice. <laughs> this is the first issue I've really had with migrations. <laughs> it's when I decided to expand their uh, precision. <laughs> so you know, it's funny. I've I've been thinking like I've been debating and I've been going back and forth on whether I want uh, migrations in Diesel to enforce integer ordering or not. I think your story has convinced me that I'm going to go with string ordering. <laughs> That's the other thing is like we could like, I guess one of the developers there was working on a patch to a patch, a monkey patch to <laughs> active record to basically do string ordering of the migrations rather than I was like, well, we should probably just brute force and fix it rather than monkey patching this. That, or you just monkey patch the migration generator to always include milliseconds. Yeah, but that doesn't help. Oh, yeah, I guess from that point on, <laughs> right, then you're fine. <laughs> Uh yeah, um, so migrations are going to be a thing in Diesel. I need to write. I still need to write the command line utility, which you're going to write that command line utility in Ruby, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. So I've actually got this. I, I'm thinking that I might end up making the command line a separate crate and not part of Diesel itself, just because. Uh, so, for example, for, to, to generate a migration, I need stir from time, mm -hmm. which is not a thing because Rust Rust has an unstable 
time feature, but like Rust, it, it doesn't have many useful utilities for that. The idea, you know, things like date formatting are left out of the standard library for other crates to handle. Um, so I need to use one of those, but I don't actually want that to be a dependency of diesel because mm-hmm. like the library itself doesn't use it. I use it once in this binary that I happen to ship with it. Well, is there, does, does cargo have notions of development dependencies versus um, it does have notions of development dependencies, but I don't think development dependencies are part of the binary. Right. They're, they're, they're used like for running tests. Right. All right. Well, that makes sense then. I've been thinking of like seeing if maybe the concept of a, like in the, in the longer term, cause this wouldn't happen in time, but in the longer term, I've been wondering if maybe the concept of a binary dependency makes sense, which I ping some people to say like, Hey, does this seem reasonable? And then there was some miscommunication on what I meant by binary, <laughs> and um, that led to not getting an answer, basically. And I need to ping people again. Okay. Good luck with that. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's going to ship, and then um, there will just be a bunch of bug fixes in the next version. I'm, I'm hoping to get 0.4 out this weekend. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be implementing um, the new type lookup deal for schema inference where I base it off of a, a database table because that's the only way I can think of that third-party crates can hook into it, which will be like very important if third-party crates want to supply custom types. But right now there are not third-party crates trying to supply custom types, so nobody will care except me. <laughs> You'll like that it's it's going to be possible without without much additional work on your part. Right. And it'll, uh, it'll also have a side effect of fixing a bug where um, t- schema inference does not work with arrays right now. Great. Yeah. What else? Anything else? I don't know. I think we can just have a shorter episode. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Uh, okay. Show notes for this. Yeah, episode. I'm trying to think. Like last time, like our last episode ended kind of abruptly. Like I just listened to it and did the notes for it, and it uh, ended. It ended kind of abruptly, and I'm always like, should we have wind down? I don't know. Whatever. I think the, the show's over now. The show's over, people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> show notes for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's the glow. That's it. <laughs> You'll have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 46. If you've enjoyed the show, please make sure to share it with your friends or leave us a review on iTunes. If you have feedback on this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>